Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started with Matthew. How are you, my friend? So, oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say shorts. This is clearly <laughs> not shorts. No, we're not talking about your shorts today, okay? That's the after show. I... Uh, yeah. Okay. Probably the least said about that, the better. Thank you, David. Apparently this was my idea and I'm regretting it already. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. Um, Apparently. We uh, have lots of witty banner that we just don't have time for. This is a uh, the, the sermon that we are going to do, uh, the conversation between two Christians, uh, Sean McDonough, uh, jo- is it Sean? Sean McDowell. Sean, yeah. And uh, Gary Habermas. Um, Our two favorite people, apparently. Yeah, they're... Uh, so anyone familiar with the early days of Skeptics and Seekers might recall that I've had both of these gentlemen on the show. And um, I, I enjoyed uh, talking to them. Although, I must say, I think I might have pissed Gary Habermas off. <laughs> I think I may have upset him, um, but uh, I did enjoy talking to him. Um, and um, Sean, uh, we had a we had a very good, yeah, Sean. We had a very. I get him and his dad confused because um, they both sound like kids' names, you know, Sean or Josh or you know. <laughs> so uh, I, we had a very good. Uh, conversation. And some of the conversation we had was about some of what's going to be discussed. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try hard not to rehash that. But if you want to search through the archives of Skeptics and Seekers, you can find it, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Log in your Discuss account and discuss away. Send me an email, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Matt, what are you doing? Where can people find you? Let's get that out of the way so we can jump right into the show. Reasonpress at gmail.com. Search for Still Unbelievable in your favorite podcast place. And at some point, you'll eventually find me. All right. Uh, there are other comments to be made, but we will make them through this show. Uh, one disclaimer. I This is something I never do, but I, I had to heavily edit this lecture. It's two hours. I cut it down uh, to, you know, a little more than a quarter of that. So there's a lot on the cutting room floor. This is my cut. I've got a lot to say. So it, it, it's going to go long. Matt's going to have a lot to say. And maybe mm-hmm. Matt will come back and uh, do his cut. And uh, we can talk about more of that as well. And uh, we will be glad to carry that on in the comments. Sometimes Matt loses his ever loving mind and jumps into the comments over at 4S. Sometimes. You, sometimes, you, yes. you might catch him there. <laughs> it, it has been known to happen. Shall we set some context for why we're doing this video? Absolutely. Because the Lord Habermas, why isn't he a Lord by now? He's been promising the world for since the beginning of time, that he's got this big magnum opus coming about Jesus and the resurrection. He's going to make it undeniable to everybody. And he's been promising this for, well, yeah, like I said, the beginning of time. So apparently, 
Monday, which I believe is the day after tomorrow, part one of four, the resurrection, the evidences, the case of this massive volume. I believe it's 900 pages or something like that. It weighs the same as a small Honda. Yeah. And this is available for the princely fee of $80 on your favorite web-based bookstore. And this is talking about that. So this is going to be jam-packed full of undeniable evidences that will make even the likes of you and myself, David, leave this conversation absolutely convinced that the resurrection did happen. Yeah, well, what it what it's going to do is expose us as the hypocrites that we are, because even when evidence is presented, we would still yep. deny it. I have uh, already deep fat fried my hat, and I'm already numbing. You know, that's that's how that's how devastating this is going to be for us. I, I are you ready he, for it? I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> anyway, you know you're talking to a Brit when they say things just out of the out of the blue, and you have no idea what it what it means, but you can imagine it in your mind. Uh, where's Sarah when you need her? Um, Sarah, all right. help. <laughs> so here, here we go. And I, uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do it up front so that I don't do it all through the video. There is, um, I have a number of objections to a number of, of things said because I also have done a bit of work on the resurrection. Um, but I can tell you most of my objections come down to one objection. And so I will just point it out from time to time uh, throughout the video. And that one objection is that Gary Habermas, to make his case, has to rely on the credibility of the New Testament as a reliable history. He has to rely on the credibility of Paul you know, that what Paul is saying is true. He has to rely on the credibility of the gospel writers as if that's true. And so he, he proves biblical claims by the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, that is throughout, that is just a massive underlying presupposition through all of this. And I know that he, he addresses some of this. Uh, I, I don't actually think I have any of that in my cut. I know that um, that's going to be in his book uh, somewhat, but I, I just have to tell you, when Christians make these kinds of cases, and, and you're going to see it in the cuts that I made, it's just again and again and again this underlying presupposition that skeptics simply don't share. So um, did you have any uh, observations that you, you wanted to make? Up front, I just give you the chance to do that. Well, I agree with exactly what you've just said, and it's my issue with Gary Habermas and his whole methodology from the start is everything that he says. And it's not just him. It's pretty much Christian apologetics from the get-go. The Bible is taken as true, and then everything that they argue is based on top of that. The objections that they manufacture to then argue against are still objections that are assumed that the basic underlying claims in the Bible are true. Like, for example, the resurrection appearances of Jesus, which I'm assuming is in your cuts, may or may it's not be, cuts. we'll find mm -hmm. out in a minute. They assume that the resurrection appearances happened, and then everything they talk about is that they, at no point do they actually ask the question, what if those 
are fiction? What if mm. those appearances didn't actually happen? But they don't. They just go straight to, oh, well, you as an atheist obviously think they're just group hallucinations. Well, we know those are unlikely. But actually, so, yeah, you and I have exactly the same complaint. Okay. Uh, we're going to see this uh, time and again throughout. And so I'll have a little bit more to say as we go. Here's a, a little bit of, uh, I, I've skipped the introductory introduction. And so this is kind of a, a little bit of biographical information on Habermas, if you are not familiar with him. And with that, I will just, <laughs> just hit the button again. Right. What first motivated you to rationally examine the evidence for the resurrection? And did you expect it to become a life's work? No, although, I mean, no, I would not have expected it, but there's something that might have hinted it. Mm -hmm. And it was this, uh, in my teen years, I started going through some serious doubts about Christianity mm -hmm. and it lasted for a long time. It lasted for 20 years, straight for wow. 10 and off and on for 10 more for mm. total of 20. And, and it went on past my PhD. Okay. I, that's one point that I wanted to make. I've, I've made this point before. Um, uh, in, in fact, he said that when he, when he spoke to me a few years ago, uh, that his doubts, his doubt journey, that's what the show is actually about uh, on, on doubts. Uh, if you're looking it up, uh, but uh, what I was wondering is uh, how is it possible to doubt something so central as the existence of God, per se, when you are one of the most elite people in the world by the time you have uh, achieved your graduate degree at a university? Uh, you're intelligent, highly educated, and and you know all of the stuff that the average person is never going to have access to. And yet, even after that, you still have serious doubts uh, about uh, Christianity, about uh, the existence of God, about all of that. How is that even possible? So he, uh, we had some conversation about that, <laughs> to say the least, and. Um, I'm not sure that he appreciated the question or the pushback uh, there, but I, I think part of my point was if you, the most education, one of the most educated people in the world in this field at that point in your life are still having doubts, how can you possibly blame someone like me for not believing? For someone yeah, with even point. less acumen than me and education than me for not believing? If you practically sitting in the lap of God still didn't believe. So, um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to point that out because I still find that a little bit of a mystery, uh, looking forward, forward to the challenge. Did you have anything before I went back here? Mm, nope. Carry All on. Right. That's most of what I wanted in this clip, by the way, I will sometimes move my mouse and you can look and see how much time is in the clip. This is a short one. I've got five clips. Uh, not all of them are this short. So it went on for a long time. And friends started coming up to me, Christian friends, and saying, so what do you need? And I said, evidence. I thought at that time I needed evidence. I wish somebody had told me that there's different kinds of doubt, but evidence. All right, well, have you studied creation? 
No. All right, you better start studying that. What what we call today intelligent design. Oh, well, you better you better study that. Okay. Well, that's okay. Not bad, but doesn't tell me Christianity is true. Okay. Archaeology. Well, that's nice, but doesn't prove Christianity is true. The New Testament's reliable or almost reliable. I was reading critical material, so I didn't know who to believe. Anyway, they sent me to a bunch of things, and I thought some of them are lousy arguments. Some of them are good arguments, but none of them show Christianity's true. It just shows there's some exciting things about Christianity I didn't know. Then one day in my reading, and I was reading incessantly, I read in a book, if God raised Jesus from the dead, hmm. Jesus' teachings must be true, because why else would God do it? And I thought, it's like one sentence. And I thought, wow, that makes sense. And so when archaeology, ID, um, argument, FF F. Bruce and old arguments for reliability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, prophecy, which I rejected pretty quickly. Um, when they didn't work, enter, enter into my life the topic of the resurrection. Now, I couldn't have guessed. No, I couldn't have guessed it would take me forever. But if you'd asked me, I'd say, well, what else am I going to study? It's the best topic out there. Hmm. So resurrection answered my factual questions after an incredibly long search. And knowing more about myself, because I found out about emotional doubt and volitional doubt, which I wrote about later. But it's but it's been a lifelong search just for me to master this topic, so that's a short preview. Okay, uh, I would just I, the other reason I wanted to play this clip is to just say, look at all of the Christian mainstay arguments that even Gary Habermas, even a highly intelligent, highly educated Gary Habermas, said, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> I just, I find that, um, yeah, just amazing because once again, if, if it didn't work for Gary Habermas, why do you think it's going to work for me? <laughs> why do you, uh, why do you, why do you think that there's such, uh, good arguments? Uh, and I, I appreciate, uh, Gary's honesty here, uh, by saying, yeah, that stuff doesn't work. And he's not, when he says, I reject prophecy, he's not saying, I don't believe prophecy is true. Uh, he's not saying that the Bible isn't true. He believes that, certainly believes it now. But he was saying that uh, as arguments to convince someone uh, who is in doubt, like he was, they're they're ineffective. They're, they're not yeah. effective arguments. He put two categories of arguments. Those that are bullshit and those that are nearly bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't say there are arguments that are really really good and should convince you he didn't say that i'm glad we have a brit on the show to interpret for us sometimes you've got to say it the way it is you know uh, <coughs> hello gary if you're listening he will never come on my show. He'll, he, he'll he will reject any advances that I make he towards might. him. He, he will he, never court me. A nice guy. Um, I'm going to go to clip number. Now, hang on a minute. No, no, before you do that, there's something he said in that clip that you've just said. Uh -huh. If God rose Jesus from the dead, oh yeah, that's then it. everything that Jesus said must be true. 
how does that equation work? I, and I'm, does it work for anybody else? You know those saints who were raised from their tombs that walked around like zombies mm -hmm. on the same day? Is everything that they said also true? So if for whatever reason we don't get to it, it's in my last clip, this comes back again. And so I did have a, a prepared comment for that. But yes, I'm glad that uh, you pointed uh, that out because I did uh, mean to hang a lantern on that and I just uh, forgot. So It's almost yeah. like we think the same things, David. Well, yeah, but you think them in a different language. Um, the blurry. real language. Yeah, we won't go there. There's plenty of time to pick that one up. I don't know. Um, so... I, it is it is absolutely uh, true though. It's as if uh, he has compartmentalized that and just conveniently forgot about all of the occasions of people being raised from the dead. Um, and and it's more profoundly obvious how bad of an argument this is uh, when he makes it again uh, toward the end. So I will leave it there. I think this said. Clip two, just look at the top and does that clip say clip two? two? Okay. Yep. All right, here we go. What I would say the best ever they're all New Testament and they're from Paul. And I can see your but studio. No argument there. It just they would go, What? You think that's the strongest? Yeah, well, what are you gonna use? The Gospel of John? Yeah, well, you'll be laughed out of court if you do that. So I I def Okay. You have to do your own path when you're going down to people who don't like the material. Okay, so don't lay out those three arguments right now. We're going to come to your 12 facts soon. But I have to ask, what would you just consider those three strongest facts? I know everybody's wondering that at this point. What would those arguments be without laying them out? All right, say them, but don't explain them. Right? Yeah. Okay. I think there's a tie between one and two, but there's a little edge okay. on one. By far the strongest argument in my mind is an argument that virtually every critical scholar accepts, even atheist New Testament scholars. And that's in Galatians chapter 1 and in Galatians chapter 2. Notice it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Hmm. After Paul is converted, which everybody dates to two to three years after the crucifixion. No, they don't. Um, so, sorry. Uh, I did quite a bit of research on that, and a lot of scholars do, conservative scholars have this habit of pushing dates earlier and earlier and earlier. And over time, you kind of see that because early dates uh, suit them better than late dates. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, when I first started studying this sort of thing, uh, and I was a Christian at the time, uh, looking at Christian material, it was more like 14 years after. And uh, some of the sources that you will find are 14 years, but you you are finding more and more that date it uh, in the 30s, uh, not necessarily two or three years, but sometime uh, in the 30s as it gets earlier uh, and earlier and earlier. And as conservative scholars are, you know, more and more the only people talking about this stuff <laughs> anymore. Um, so I, the idea, though, uh, that all of the scholars believe blank uh that's that's one tactic of very conservative uh scholars to just hand wave it and say everybody agrees with this don't so don't don't look very closely and the other is to give a very early date it doesn't matter what the subject is it's just it's just going to be earlier than other scholars and earlier than i think uh any any real look at 
history can support. Uh, I'm not saying that it can also, you know, that it can support a later date either. There's just not enough information to claim that this thing happened uh, two or three years after this time. That's that's not really easy to support. And up until recently, almost no scholars were saying that. So I, I just wanted to to put that in there. Yeah. The, the other thing to note is when scholars do give dates for these uh, documents, they tend to give a range of dates, which covers a couple of decades. And what Gary is doing here, and a lot of conservative apologists do, is they just go for the lower edge, which you've already said, the lower edge of that range. But the, the scholarly accurate thing to do is give the full range. When Jonathan McClatchy came on to this to talk about the Alpha course uh, with Andrew and myself, and you brought a friend on, he made this very point, and he was very critical about some <clears throat> Christian apologists about the accuracy of these kinds of date ranges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, uh, so the one other thing I was going to say about that it was very brief and. I the other remember. thing I want to pick up from this clip that you've just showed is the equivocation between evidence and arguments. And this is done, they slip between talking about evidence and then talking about arguments. And they use the two words interchangeably, almost as if they mean exactly the same thing. Hint, they don't mean exactly the same thing. But this equivocation is a common, common tactic in this kind of discussion. And we really need to hit that one hard. Uh, right. Oh, and I remember what I was going to say about the date thing, too. The reason, um, I, so I once again, I did a lot of research on this um more than i should have uh for this podcast but i did it so i'm going to share some of it um the reason uh you get this kind of early date from people and in it surprised me which is why i studied it a little bit more is because what they're trying to do is harmonize things from the letters of paul with acts mm -hmm. and anyone who's studied paul and luke uh, luke being the author of acts knows that almost any place where a story intersects between Paul and Luke, there's a discrepancy. They they do not actually agree on almost anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, to get this early date, they're just kind of cross-referencing um, Paul with Luke because in Acts, Paul's conversion comes later, after, for instance, the conversion of Cornelius or around that time. And almost everyone uh, agrees, well, that happened about 14 years uh, after uh, the resurrection. And so it's you have to you have to do a little bit of dancing around to get two to three years after it. And I just wanted to share that. Don't buy the the uh, bombastic assurance that everybody agrees that this happened two, two or three years later. So it's no. 32 to 33. If you think of 30 AD crucifixion, mm -hmm. 32, 33, Paul's converted. And he specifically says in Galatians 1, three years later, I went up to mm -hmm. Jerusalem and I spent two weeks, 15 days, with Peter. And I didn't see any other apostles except James. So Peter and James. Now, you know, what's the first thing you're going to ask Peter and James if you're Paul? I'll just give you my first question for them if I'm Paul. Hey, I've heard you guys saw the risen Jesus, and you probably heard I have. I don't want to hear rumors anymore. I want you guys to tell me what the risen Jesus looked like to you, 
and then I'll tell you what the risen Jesus looked like to me. That would be my first question. How can you get around the gospel? So, and in chapter 2, where Paul goes back to Jerusalem, Galatians 2, first 10 verses, it specifically says we discuss the definition of the gospel. Mm. And he, Paul defines that as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But later, in the New Testament, the gospel is the deity, death, and resurrection. Burial is not always there. Deity, death, resurrection. So now I know they discussed it in this two trips to Jerusalem. And critics like to say, we have Paul's account, and Paul's an eyewitness, but we have no other eyewitnesses of the other appearances. And I go, except that Paul interviewed Peter and James, and they were eyewitnesses, and they discussed the gospel. And even Bart Ehrman says, he says, where do we get closer to the eyewitnesses than right here? So I'm going to Okay, uh, just real quick, uh, returning to the the key objection uh, that I have, uh, let me just ask you a question, uh, one that I think most people, uh, Christians have probably never asked themselves. How do you know that Paul ever met with Peter and James? Well, we know it because Paul said he did. Okay, Peter never said it. Um, we have, you know, some mention in, I want to say second Peter that we know wasn't written by Peter. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> P- Peter never acknowledged that James never acknowledged that none of the apostles, uh, ever mention Paul, uh, not even, not even in Luke, uh, and what is going on in Luke, remember comes from Luke, not any of the actual apostles. And so this house of cards that he is building right now mm-hmm. is founded on the fact that Paul said he met with them. It's like the time uh, I met with Benjamin Netanyahu and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, why are you laughing? Uh, we, I can show you what yeah. we said. I mean, the very first thing uh, I asked them, uh, what, never mind, it doesn't matter. Look, I can, you can claim anything. Uh, right, and Paul is constantly doing a lot of resume building uh, for why he should be considered an apostle. But the only evidence that we have that he ever met with any of these guys comes from him. Oh, yeah, because he he said it because he needs to build up his own reputation. Yeah, he's, how he's, do we know that that sentence where Paul says he met with them isn't itself a fabrication? Right. We have we have no reason to believe it at all. <laughs> so now you can say, well, you don't have any reason to disbelieve it. I actually do. We do a whole show on why I have reasons to disbelieve things that Paul says. But the forget that. We don't have any reason to believe it. Uh, and this goes straight to what you and I said right at the very beginning, or rather what you said and I excitedly agreed to, is that he has to take these little minute points these little snippets of uh, biblical text, and he has to believe that they are unquestionably true as written in order to build any kind of case for what he's trying to propose. Right, because Paul would never lie, because what motivation does he have to lie? Well, again, we can yeah. talk about a whole uh, show on that. Paul essentially became the Pope of the Church. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just about, he pretty much kicked Peter aside. As as uh, as that, because we but everything that he said must be true. Then it must be because he was an apostle. 
so because Jesus appeared to him in glory. Why would Jesus do that if what he said was unreliable? And how do we know that? Uh, because, because okay, <laughs> so we're gonna look. We'll we'll get through there. But I the the whole House of Cards is based on this sort of thing. Here we go. Say Jerusalem, number one. Close second is an argument that when I gave it to my PhD students just a few years ago, they said. I'm halfway through my program. How come I've never even heard this argument before? Because it's so hot and being, it's been around for a long time, but didn't make its way through the numbers of scholars. The creedal argument, there's early creeds mm. in the New Testament, dozens of them. Most of them are in Paul, but they're in the epistles, very rarely in the gospels, very rarely, but they're usually in the epistles. The best known one is 1 Corinthians 15, three to, some say 3 to 5 and some say 3 to 7, but that list of appearances is the most famous one, and virtually every scholar today is going to admit that some are most likely, well, most, and maybe even all, were date, they date in the 30s AD. The creeds date in the 30s. Okay, um, I don't know if I have this uh, later on, but he just mentioned the list of appearances. Uh, he's talking about that list in Acts chapter 15 um, in in the early verses uh, there, maybe starting with verse 3, thereabouts. Um, that list by itself should be enough to either unravel Paul as reliable or unravel unravel the Gospels. Because they don't work. Uh, it doesn't work at all. Uh, the list is very, very specific. I'm not going to pull it up and, and read it. I promised myself I'm not going to start reading uh, texts. But um, that list, it says the first person, it's very clear about this, the first person the risen Jesus appeared to is Peter. Not one of the Gospels confirmed that. The first person the risen Peter, uh, Jesus appeared to is Mary. The second person that he appeared to were the two clowns on the road to Emmaus because they weren't named, and so I'm just calling them clowns. <laughs> um, Paul doesn't know about any of that. So in his world, th there is no Mary, you know, a woman coming to spread the good news. No. It's Peter. Jesus appears to Peter first. There, there are some other problems. You're not with that suggesting list. that Paul would be sexist enough to completely erase the, the female experience from his chronological history that's been thoroughly investigated. So Paul uh, was, in my uh, in modern terms, a sexist, to be sure. But no, I'm not actually suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that he had one made-up story. And the gospels, gospel writers had a different made-up story. And so one of them is simply not true. Now, both of them most likely aren't true. But if you are inclined to think that the Bible is true, you can't look at the two lists and say they're the same. They're not. Paul was wrong or the gospels were wrong. And then you have to decide, well, if wrong, why are they wrong? Maybe one of them, Paul, was making shit up to but fill out his resume. Paul investigates these people, the authors of 
at least a couple of these Gospels in great detail to make sure he got all his facts right. Impossible, because the Gospels weren't written. <laughs> they weren't written during Paul's lifetime. <laughs> Paul was actually no, but the surely first. He, he interviewed the people who eventually wrote them. So well, surely there should still be some if you match buy, up here. If you mean by interviewed, um, persecuted to death, uh, sure. I, it, once again, though, we... we it, I have doubts that even that happened for for reasons. Don't make me do this, okay? I've I've talked for hours on Paul. Um, I am trying very hard to be a good boy. Um, I'm just trying to point out very small, obvious things, and one of them, Gary Habermas, just brought up the list. So, uh, if you're speaking to credibility, if you're speaking to the appearances, the this list of appearances Paul gives is a flat out lie. And so if some, as, if some aspect of the list yeah. is a lie, why don't we accept that all of it might be a lie? Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I find really interesting is, remember, this is an interview the weekend before this great big magnum opus, this 900 pages book that you can buy for $80 somewhere on the internet that is coming out that he spent five decades researching in here. And the evidence that he goes to is there in the Bible. He hasn't found something else in all these years of researching and more researching and writing all these pages. He hasn't found something else. He still goes straight to what the Gospels and the letters of Paul say for his um, argument. I mean, evidence, sorry, sorry argument. Really? Is, is this what your $80 is paying for? Well, I'm going to buy a Bible if I'm really that desperate. No, that that's eighty dollars for the first volume. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So when someone says, "How can you believe John?" and they'll pick the latest one, right, just to make a bad point. John is plus sixty-five at ninety-five A.D. He's sixty-five years later. Um, how good a source is that? Well, I'll answer that. Better than the other religion has. Hmm. Sixty-five better than the other one, hmm. but I'll go to creeds from the thirties. That's number two. Number three, a little bit of a lag between two and three, but three is still good. The so-called criteria for the New Testament. Hmm. And believers know these. We use them all the time and probably don't even know we use them. Criteria would be things like this. Do you have eyewitnesses? Do you have early sources? Do you have enemy attestation? Do you have multiple attestation? Um, you know, multiple attestation is a biggie because that's two heads are better than one. And Bar Ehrman, just to give you an example, allows 15 independent sources for the crucifixion of Jesus within 100 years. That's a period he uses for fair history. 100 years, 15 sources for Jesus, uh, for the crucifixion. Well, that's a lot of evidence for the crucifixion. So that's how you use the criteria. It's the things that historians use, mm. Testament scholars use to verify texts. So when you verify a text in the Gospels, how do you know that's true? That was written way later. Well, let me tell you why. As John Meyer might say, um, I can find four criteria that back up that fact. If that's true, that's a fact. Hmm. So I'd say criteria number three. Okay. Um, right. So I, I could comment here, but I think that I will just say refer to my first objection. You see, all of these numerous criteria are just different places in the Bible where it talks about it, you know, he considers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
for independent sources of historical fact. So that's, you know, this is, and then uh, you have Paul, uh, and then you might have Luke again with uh, the book of Acts. Um, You know, if, if, you know, it's all within the Bible as his sources. Now, there are one or two things uh, extra biblical that he might be thinking about. I don't think he goes into that. Uh, But if someone wants to come at me on the board uh, with that, I will be glad to uh, talk about the extra biblical sources. Um, Here's, here's my brief summary that there are none, but bring your, bring your best shot (laughs) and uh, we'll, uh, we'll take care of it. But when he's, I just want to just make that clear. And then also when Bart Ehrman is talking about different sources, he's also doing the same thing uh, within the Bible. He considers uh, the gospels as sources. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, necessarily agree with the conclusions. There are a lot of things in the Gospels he doesn't agree, but he 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 thinks of them as historical sources. So I just I just wanted to um, kind of make that point there as I find clip three. And also this whole adherence to the line that oh it's recent therefore it must be true is all very very weird. No, it's almost as if conspiracies never happen within the first week of something happening. <laughs> Sandy Hook, <laughs> 9-11. Right. Can you tell me, is that three or five up there? Five. Okay. Um, or Now I can see your studio be. desktop again. Okay. Hopefully everyone else can't. That's the desktop. That's the all right. That should be yeah, clip your three. Studio right console, yeah. That says clip three now. All right. Uh, I don't care how many errors you think there are in the Bible. I'm going to use facts that everybody allows, even atheists do testament scholars. So obviously, the reason discrepancies don't touch these facts. I'm using the ones for which there are no discrepancies. Okay, and so as you can tell, this is a. Uh, this part of the conversation, he's addressing some of the objections that, well, you know, the resurrection story, there are discrepancies in there. And what he is, uh, just kind of summarizing it because this was a pretty long section, what he was uh, arguing is that even though, even if there are discrepancies around some of the details, the details don't change the don't touch the ultimate fact. Those discrepancies are about some other things that are ancillary, but the main fact still remains is kind of his argument. He uses the analogy of a contortionist in a uh, magician's box. Uh, she she gets in and she winds herself around, uh, you know, certain channels within the box, and then the magician stabs the sword in the box uh, here and there. And it's uh, going along specific paths where she is not. And his his point is, you can stab holes at all of the discrepancies you want because they still don't touch the main issue. And so that's that's what he's saying there. Yeah, I've got a big problem with that entire frame of logic, but I'm sure you have too. 
Oh yeah, I I do. Um, let's. Uh, uh, he's got a large shovel though. I, I think he's going to continue to dig. And if I can still get a resurrection, the worst thing I could have. This is the worst. This is not me. You got to remember, I teach at Liberty University. The worst thing you would have is a Swiss cheese New Testament where Jesus still is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. It's a little Swiss cheese because they find critics problems. But we still have the gospel, and we're still going to heaven, and the gospel is still true. Right. So just forget about all that stuff. I mean, this is this is part of his argument. You know, when when skeptics come with this stuff and you don't have the answers to it, and they seem to be making a lot of sense about the Bible not being reliable, just understand that the most important thing, Jesus rose. Uh, they can't touch that, and uh, you're going to go to heaven. Uh, they can't touch that. So forget about the rest of it. It doesn't matter. Um, just wow. I, I don't even know where to begin, and so I'm I'm not going to begin. You can come and talk to me uh, at the comments, but I can tell you that I the kind of Christianity uh, that I was a part of would have said, "What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you What do you mean um, that the Bible could could you could just wave it off as you know Swiss cheese full of holes? But uh, you know the holes don't hit the main points." Uh, if the Bible is flawed a little bit, then it is not the perfect word of God, which Gary Habermas also believes, even though that's not what he's saying now. And so I just I just find this part of the argument very disingenuous. The way uh, that he's phrased that last sentence is a bit of a red red light to me. <clears throat> because let's remember the context here. He spent 50 years... 20 of those years having serious doubts, researching the resurrection, and he's got this 900-page book, which is volume one of four of the evidences for the resurrection. And having done all that, he can't bring himself to utter the words, there are good reasons to consider the resurrection didn't happen, but here I am, I've done this work, this is why you can have a bit more confidence in it. Because that's the kind of phraseology you would expect from somebody from those scientists who are researching the Higgs boson. Mm. The, you know, but what he has to say is no, 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 you can't touch the resurrection. And it, it, this is why people label words like accusations like grifter mm. and Gary Habermas, mm. because it smells of dishonesty. In his defense, I will say that Gary Habermas, his entire magnus opus, his entire work on the resurrection, uh, and you you would have gotten this from the introduction if we had played the long introduction. Uh, there's just not a lot of time for that. But it was to save himself from his doubts. It was to keep him in the church. And I, I, I make this argument all the time. Christian apologetics, most the vast majority of Christian arguments all of Christian apologetics, it's not for converting atheists to Christianity. It's for keeping Christians from deconverting to atheists. Um, that's that's what it's all about. That's, that's the whole point, the whole focus. Uh, and that's why it can be full of lots of presuppositions that these doubting Christians already have. You would never make these arguments if what you were trying to do is uh, try to convert a pure atheist to Christianity. Th these arguments would never stand up. They wouldn't stand up for uh, three seconds. 
And so uh, he's he is kind of addressing that doubting Christian, whether he realizes it or not. He's always addressing that doubting Christian uh, and saying, don't worry about the objections that they bring up. No matter what, hang on to the resurrection and the fact that you're saved and going to heaven. And then you can just whistle past the rest of it, which is what so many Christians do, not realizing that the resurrection is a hammock tied to the trees of things that atheists are chopping down. You can't say, I can rest easy in my hammock when the trees have been chopped down. Exactly. Is that Was that a strategy you tried, David, when you were deconstructing? Never. Did you try to hold on to the resurrection? Never. And build the case from there? Never. No, never. Because I understood that the resurrection was a part of the whole story. It was a part of the story. It doesn't make sense if the rest of the story doesn't work. If Genesis doesn't work, the resurrection doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once again, I could I could talk for three hours on that, and I have. Um, you know, so much of it doesn't work. If the exodus doesn't work, the resurrection doesn't work. We mm-hmm. can go all the way through the major points in the story, and so... Uh, we, you know, we can hit the version birth. If the version birth doesn't work, you don't get to a, a, a Jesus that's a God in the first place. It, it doesn't work. Your resurrection Jesus is just another fool who was raised from the dead in the Bible. Uh, so in order for the resurrection to be meaningful, all of this other stuff that he's waving away has to be true. If you're going to believe this story on the basis of the witness of the women, then the women have to be telling the truth. God, I told myself I wouldn't get into this. Just think about it, though. The witnesses for all of this stuff, the only people that any quote-unquote historian could have interviewed would be the women. Mary is the only person who could tell you about the visit from the angel. (laughs) She's the only one who can confirm that she had a virgin birth. No one else could. Um, the uh, women at the tomb, the only people who could tell you about that were the women because no men were there. Um, and so if he wants us to believe in the testimony of the women for the empty tomb and the resurrection and all that, well, if we can't believe their testimony on all of the other stuff that he's willing to wave off and say, it doesn't matter if that's wrong. What he's waving off is the credibility of the only witnesses he has. You can't do that and then hang a hammock on trees that are already on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here we go. So mm. that guy's saying the the Quran can't can't refute 30 AD. He's totally right. But when he does errors, everybody does errors. It does not refute these key facts. I mean, does anybody think Bart Ehrman thinks there's no errors in Scripture? Bart Ehrman says it's not even reliable. Well, how do, why does he admit all my facts? Because they're facts. That's why. Bart Emerson doesn't admit all his facts. I'll just uh, stop there. <laughs> all right, good response. No, that's great. I mean, that's... You remember, you've been doing this for decades. You learn your kind of, just like that woman in the box, you learn your way around these things. <laughs> no, no, I love it. That's great. Well, let's shift to the next one. Uh, you said okay. Jesus was buried most likely in a private tomb. So what's kind of the basic case for the burial and the consensus on this. And it seems like this has changed, hasn't it, over the years? Yeah, yeah but remember, burial is not one of my minimal facts. Burial is one of the second six. 
maybe we should name them real fast so that people know. Because um, my minimal facts start with Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay. And the very next one is the disciples had experiences that they believed to be appearance of the risen Jesus. I don't even count the empty tomb because the empty tomb, there's mm -hmm. as many evidence for the empty tomb as there is for any fact, but scholars don't like it. So I put it in my second six. Okay. A burial is way in the second six. I think it's good. The evidence for the a burial is, is good, but it's not one of my six facts. So I go from Jesus died by crucifixion to the disciples thought they saw him again. That's number two. And that, mm -hmm. by the way, is not only the most important fact for us, that they saw him walking and talking after he died on the cross. It's not that's the most central, but it's also the strongest. Jesus died by crucifixion is number one. So the evidence that Jesus died by crucifixion, uh, the extra biblical evidence, because I'm discounting the biblical evidence, honestly. The extra biblical evidence is the same extra biblical evidence that they use for the existence of Jesus. <coughs> there really isn't anything else there. And so if you think that that evidence is uh, fairly weak, it's it's the same weak evidence. And so just ask yourself, you know, what what is the evidence that... Uh, Jesus was crucified. There were a lot of people that the Romans crucified. A lot of a lot of false messiahs died during that time. Um, so Jesus of Nazareth specifically, do we have any court records on that? Do we have anything from Pilate on that? No, we don't. What we have are uh, mostly creeds and things that Christians said you know, to other people who uh, wrote it down. We don't actually have any independent corroboration of that at all, but this is his number one indisputable fact. And why is it indisputable? Well, by and large, because it's in the Bible. Um, uh, number two was the appearances uh, to the disciples. How do we know about the dis appearances to the disciples? Or at least that they thought that they had appearances because it's in the Bible, never mind the fact that we did not ever hear a word from any of the original disciples firsthand about any appearances. Has that fact ever dawned on you, uh, Matt? Not one of the original 12, and then the the uh, one who replaced Judas. Uh, Matthias, was it? Uh, not one of them, not one of them ever wrote down their account of their time with Jesus, and more specifically, the resurrection. I was out of Christianity by the time the thought of critically, critically analyzing these kinds of claims to this kind of level ever occurred to me, which is quite shameful, really. Christians should pay more attention to this kind of criticality, but that's the big fault of Christianity. It right. doesn't allow for that. Right. So we, we know about the the idea that they thought they saw Jesus in bodily form because they're in the Gospels, which were not written by any of them, or because of uh, you know things that Paul said about them, and he he was not there, uh, or because what Luke said about uh, them and Acts, but none of them actually said anything. Uh, directly. So it's just an interesting point. So that's his fact number one and number two. Those are his two strongest facts. They get worse from there, I guess. Along with the crucifixion and that he was seen afterwards 
are the two strongest. I'll tell you this: of all the appearances in the uh, in the uh, well, mostly all Gospels, you got Paul, but and you got James. But of the appearances to Christ, keep these two things in mind. Most of them are to groups. That's mm -hmm. really important. Most of them are to groups. And secondly, the strongest appearance is the appearance to the 12. It's multiple. Which we learn about. He's saying it's multiply attested. Where? In the Gospels. Multiply attested over and over. And even the Jesus Seminar, critics that they are, even Bar Ehrman, even Dom Crossan, who I just got an email from while I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, even <laughs> Dom Crossan, all these guys uh, will say that uh, the they, they're not questioning the crucifixion at all. They allow it. And they allow that there were multiple reports of group appearances. By the way, here's a, here's a citation. Talk about Dom Crossan. Here's, this is pretty close to a quote. Uh, Crossan says, I take it absolutely for granted mm. that Jesus died by by Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. I take it absolutely for granted. That's awesome. Marcus right. You have evidence that people think that Jesus died by crucifixion, but you don't actually have any evidence that he did. You're just quoting other Christians. Who okay. Great. I used to think it too. So you could quote me. How how does that actually forward the case <laughs> or 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 provide evidence uh for that? I mean, just just kind of listen for the things that he's calling evidence that aren't. Another one from the Jesus Seminar, Marcus Borg, uh, says almost the exact same thing. Quote, Bart Ehrman, 15 sources. So that and the appearances are a one-two punch. Okay, so let's walk through. There's a list in the book where you list the 12 together, but not necessarily in the order of the six minimal facts and then the six uh, attested facts, it's more like you list them kind of step-by-step step chronologically in the life of Jesus, even though they're all uh, well, they're, more they're telling not, the story of Jesus, so to speak. Well, they're not mixed. In my table of contents, I'll, I'll do it this way. If you, you probably have it right there. In the table of contents, I have the six minimal facts, if I can turn the page. Let me get my glasses. <laughs> the table of contents, I have the minimal historical facts is part three. Okay. And then halfway down, I mean, you know, you see these other facts. The next one is the other six known historical facts. So six plus six equals 12. Notice burial is in the second list. Gotcha. The first six. If you just want me to say them. Yeah, say the first, the first six, six. We've done two. He yep. just died. They thought he appeared. The disciples' lives were totally transformed. And you always say, man, you've written the best book on this. Um, the, the, we always say, don't don't ever say you can prove the disciples died for their faith. That's bogus. I, agree. I mean, you can go a long way, but you have to use sources that are not as late as the Muslim source to the New Testament, but they're late on the New Testament. So always say the disciples are willing to die for their faith. That means the disciples are transformed. And as you say in your book, there's no evidence that anybody recanted. Okay. The disciples are transformed, and the Christians are nodding along and saying, well, you can't deny that. But how do we know that the disciples were transformed? How, how do we know what they were? Um, 
you know, before the quote-unquote resurrection. Well, we know it because it says so in the Gospels. <laughs> it says in the Bible. That's how we know. And so, of course, they were transformed. It's a minimal fact. Um, but if you don't accept that that huge presupposition that's just sitting there, you have no basis to say that they were transformed because you you don't know who they were. <laughs> you don't know what they were. The history doesn't tell us anything about these guys. We, yeah. The only thing we get is the Bible. And you know what uh, religious people like to do? They like to talk about the transformed life. It's part of the testimony. You know, I was a drug addict. I was down and out. Uh, I was a gang member. I was a killer. Uh, I killed Elvis. Uh, you know, whatever. They, I, you know, they, this is part of the resume. Uh, and this is Paul also. Yeah, I was a killer. I I hated Christians. I slew them left and right. Just ask me later why I think that that's probably not true. Um, or, or at least a very strong exaggeration. But uh, that's it. That's a part of the resume. And so, uh, of course, the Gospels would present them as bumbling idiot doubters who were, uh, you know, disbelieving. And then this great transformation, this is a part of the religious testimony and has always been. Uh, and so how do we know about the transformed, life, the transformed lives? We see it's in the Bible. So that's great. The transformations. Mm. Um, it was proclaimed, I skipped one. The resurrection was proclaimed very early. Early in transformations happened at the same time. That's the okay. creedal evidence. And then the last two are James. By the way, the creeds that he's talking about that you can find in uh, various places where it looks like Paul is, you know, citing poetry and they and what they determine is, well, that's, that's an existing creed. And he's just kind of quoting it, you know, like people today quote C.S. Lewis. Um, and so... Uh, where do we get those creeds from? Well, they're in the Bible. Well, but surely, historically, we can find them somewhere outside of the Bible, right? No. No, you can't. So, again, uh, number one, number yeah, two, number three. It must have existed beforehand because for Paul to know about it, people must have been singing it to themselves while doing the washing up a couple of years beforehand. Really? How do you know that Paul didn't uh, write them? Oh, you can't ask questions like that, David. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, Paul is a writer. I'm a writer. I do poetry. By the way, uh, folks, if it seems like I'm looking off to the side, it's because Matthew is over there. <laughs> He's over there. So I know that that's not. I should be looking at the camera. The camera's right there. Uh, I'm very bad at this. Uh, so, yeah, that's. Um, I, I write poetry. I'm a pretty good poet. Uh, so, if I wanted to write something and pretend like there was, um, you know, a, a, a creed uh, where other people believe this thing, that would be trivially easy for me to do. And uh, Paul certainly would have been smart enough to do it. But you know what? Uh, maybe some of those creeds existed. You know what else existed? Other, other ideas about Jesus. Some, for instance, in the lifetime of the New Testament, because they write about it in the New Testament, believed that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Did you know that? It's in the Bible. Let's, we could talk about the Johns, not the Gospel John, the other Johns. We could talk about that if you really want to. So there, there are lots of ideas floating around uh, there. And it, this idea that, oh, well, everyone believed in this 
bodily resurrection and you see you got this creed and so uh, these early creeds and so that proves it because you also had early creeds that were uh, physical mythicists so what are you going to do with that St. Paul burial's not there now when you turn the page and you see the other six empty tomb is one burial is one etc okay so folks so they can hear this your minimal facts right empty tomb bible burial bible okay got it uh Maybe the next six are better. Our Jesus died by crucifixion. No debate about that. The disciples reported experiences they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. Number two. No dispute about that. That the number, disciples thought they saw appearances is not disputed. Good. Third one is they proclaim the resurrection early, right after their experiences. So like yes. you're saying, we'll come back to this. There's no early non-resurrection gospel that was proclaimed. Fourth, James, I'm sorry, fourth is the transformation in their lives to the willingness to die. And then James and Paul, those are the six. Okay, let me come back to the second one here. You said the disciples report experiences they thought were actually appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, here's where some debate. they 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 thought they were appearances. They thought they were. Now, here's where some debate comes in, that we have the testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the accepted letters. Three accounts in Acts, strong historical case can be made for this. Few people question Paul. Uh, Few people question Peter. We have multiple accounts of Peter singled and named out. But when it comes to the other 12, now they're just mentioned as a group, not mentioned as individuals. So how much confidence can we have in, say, James, the son of Zebedee, or Matthew, or Thaddeus, who's not specifically mentioned, and we don't have his direct eyewitness claim that he saw the risen Jesus. I say two things. Number one, the way I will, the way I will um, nuance that claim of disciples' transformations, I will say, as far as we know, and all the literature we have, okay, it's positive. But here's the more important one. There's Four big names in the early research. You've named everybody but one in our talking here. Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, and John. They're the four most influential Christians probably of all time. Hmm. And when Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk to the eyewitnesses, this is my number one reason, remember, he sees Peter and James and Paul. Three of the four are there. And when he comes back in Galatians 2, John is there. And in Galatians 2 2, which all basically all scholars except critics, 2 2, Paul laid on the table the gospel he preached, and he says right after that, they added nothing to me. They mm-hmm. added nothing. So the gospels are the same. I mean, the, the gospel teaching is the same. And a few verses later, verses 9 and 10, they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. So, okay, now who did? at least Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. We have them. Okay, if they're the big four, Peter, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, they're the most influential ones. We have first century martyrdom reports on three of the four, and I know you reject the second century one for John, but a lot of people think John's the only one that, you know, nothing ever happened to him, but we have a second century report. You can do what you want with that. But we have Peter, uh, James, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, we have first century witnesses, and later, 
but we have them as early as the first century to their martyrdoms. Hmm. So I say, at least those guys. And you go, what about the who rest the of them? I say, so Sorry, who are the witnesses to these martyrdoms? Right. So this is, um, I was I was just going to mention if anyone wants to uh, look it up and do a little bit of uh, reading homework. Candida Moss, uh, I believe, is the author. Uh, the Myth of Persecution. Uh, she's a Christian. Uh, she's not a skeptic. Uh, but Christians rely so heavily on the idea that, oh, yeah, they were so heavily persecuted. And we know about the uh, persecutions and deaths of you know so many of these guys. And the fact is, we don't. Uh, when, you, when you start pressing for the sources, the sources get thinner and thinner and thinner. And this is one of the things that uh, I talked uh, about with Josh, uh, no, Sean, sure. when I, when I uh, had him on the show. And um, he uh, admitted that, you know, the evidence was not very good for the martyrdom of all of the apostles, but he thought that it was pretty good for maybe at least two of them. Um, and so you just, the, the quote-unquote evidence, this is, this is where you have to get to extra-biblical evidence. It's not very strong at all, it mostly comes down to religious tradition uh, more than something that we would call uh, evidence. So we we actually, I, I just want to say that because if you're one of those people who just accepts the idea that that we have this uh, great data on the persecution and how these how these cats died, we do not. No, it's it's not. Uh, Sean has got a video on his YouTube channel about these, and he. He's he's very careful and very clever in, in what he says, and he acknowledges that it's poor for the majority, but there are good reasons to consider that these ones uh, are true. And you definitely get the impression that he believes the biggest number possible. But when you actually go chasing down the details, it's not as assured as he might give the impression of. And this tradition thing, I think, is very important. When you really get into some of these details, and the Catholic Church is especially bad at this with some of the things they do. They go, oh, church tradition states, and suddenly every Catholic believes it. You know, and there's a lot of this in, in Christendom, and people re need to be really careful about some of these things. There's a big, big difference between there is a good documented case for X and church tradition likes to hold up that X happened. There's a huge gulf between those two statements. Right. Um, the other thing, uh, I think it comes up uh, in another clip, but I'll, I'll just mention it uh, here. Uh, he's, he's making the case that Paul saw these pillars of the church. Uh, let's just say uh, for the moment that there were uh, two or three pillars of the church. Uh, for the record, I'm also a 12 apostles mythicist. Uh, I know. I, I just don't believe in anything. Um, you bad man. I'm not alone. Uh, look, the 12, a lot of people don't believe that there were 12 uh, anything. And I know that we get a list of names, but what we don't get. It's a very convenient the, number. It's right, almost it's, like that number appears somewhere else. Right. They have to, they kind of have to have that 12. And in fact, uh, they are. Uh, called in Paul's letters just the twelve, you know. Uh, that's that's a very as as kind of a title, and, and it would be a very very convenient number indeed. But the reason a, a lot of people don't believe in the twelve is because we just don't get stories about the twelve. Uh, if these were indeed 
the people who spent three years with Jesus. Uh, these were the witnesses. We should have them witnessing. We don't even we don't even get a mention of most of them uh, in the Bible. We what we hear about are Peter, James, and John. That's it. That's what we get from uh, the twelve, and then the rest is just kind of non-player characters uh, almost in in this game. And Paul inserts himself into that group. So if you ask yourself. Uh, today, how do people become apostles? Because in uh, you know a branch of the mainstream church, especially in the Pentecostal uh, regions of the church and some of the more charismatic regions, they still believe in apostleship, and they still make apostles today. Uh, so how do people become apostles? So if you if you look at some of these these um, charismatic revivals, like for instance the uh, Asbury revival or uh, something like that, the Vancouver. Um, uprising whatever you know they they have these names uh they're usually started by a handful of preachers and they're very successful and then preachers from all over the country come second tier preachers come and try to become a part of that group and build their career off of that and so they go they pay their homage they they do their things they line up their doctrine with uh, the heads and they get a shot, you know, they get their shot and they, they can then be kind of make their name. Um, this happens all the time. And so what Paul is describing here, there's nothing extraordinary about it. Uh, so whoever the pillars of the church were at that time, let's just call him Peter, James and John. And, uh, he goes and he does what, Preachers do who want to get in on that sort of thing. And, you know, after some time that, you know, they give them their blessing. Okay. Uh, you're good. That is, there's nothing spiritual about that. There's nothing magical about that. There's nothing that says God, therefore, uh, recognized Paul or gave Paul apostlehood or, or something like that. This is just a mundane process that happens all the time. Uh, and so I don't question uh, necessarily that this happened. It could have happened. I don't see any reason to believe it happened. Uh, I Paul has plenty of reasons to just say it happened uh, because most of the people here are talking, he's talking to, they're never going to meet James and John and Peter. So he can say, yeah, I met with those guys and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. That's all the resume he needs. So this is, this is once again, a major pillar that Gary is hanging his entire thesis off of, and it just gets weaker and weaker as he goes. Um, I there's, as you can see, there's more in here. I'm not going to finish all of this one because I want to get to the fourth and fifth fifth clip, and there's a lot more here. So if we come back and uh, come around to this, you might want to put some of this in your in your cut. Okay, uh, before I get into the next to the last clip. I just wanted to acknowledge uh, that Matt has been uh, telling me uh, on and off that uh, my my console is showing my uh, my studio uh, console. I wasn't entirely sure what he meant, uh, but yes, that has been popping up my um, Universal Audio console, which is uh, kind of a pain in my hindquarters and part of my audio chain. That has showed up for at least half of the podcast, and all it has done is cover up the 
faces of Sean and uh, Gary, they have not moved in all of this time. It's not like they've become more animated during this time. So you can watch them or you can watch my console. Neither one is particularly interesting. But, Why but, don't you just put our faces on big? Then everybody can uh, admire our gorgeousness. I wish I could. Uh, Zoom just doesn't give me that option. When I was on uh, Ecamm, I could do that. <laughs> Can't do it here. So, uh, and, uh, so at some point, I'm going to go back to Ecamm. Right now, we're going to go ahead and finish up. Okay, I'll go ahead and do it. Yeah, I'm wearing a different shirt because it's a different day. Uh, I did have some issues yesterday. I made some mistakes when I was recording the clips. Uh, I Never say, admit your mistakes, David. I'm Come doing on. it. I'm, I'm doing it. Um, I My last two clips, it was taken a while and I thought, oh, I know a method. I can do it shorter. I can do it quicker. And so I did it quicker. And the quicker way cut out the audio <laughs> from the clips. Oh, and so I had to go back and redo the clips. And so it's a different day. It's a different shirt. Uh, either that, or this is just the traditional uh, mid-show uh, costume change. Um, whichever you want to believe, folks, uh, we are back to Gary Habermas. And um, we don't have much more to go. So here we go. And Paul's hey. our best witness. So we won't go through all six of the other Yes. Horn is the be best witness. Yes. Can yes. we un unpack that, please? Because Christians, Christian apologists, make this huge thing about the Gospels being written by the eyewitnesses. And then we go, oh, but Paul is our best witness. Where was Paul in any of the Gospels? Where was Paul in the writing of any of the Gospels? Where, what parts of the Gospels did Paul actually see and write down? So, so this is actually um, part one of the notes I had uh, for the previous section, but uh, because we were going so long, I cut out most of that uh, section. <laughs> so I was going to talk about... Uh, that, and so by the you, way, nice pausing. Gary needs to get a new base for his mug there. But anyway, uh, carry on. I appreciate a well-worn coffee mug. Uh, and he's, it looks like he smashed a bug on the bottom of it. Um, <laughs> which also a perfectly good use for a coffee mug, by the way. Um, I I was going to talk about this. So I really well spotted, sir. Um, the, the So two comments. One he believes that Paul is uh, one of the best witnesses because he believes that Jesus appeared to Paul. The best witness. He said the best witness. Right. I was I was trying to soft pedal it a, a bit. You caught me. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to look. Gary. It's early in the morning for me, yeah. David. I'm, I'm most wide awake. <laughs> so, um, yes, Paul is the best witness for Gary, but I'm just, it's because Gary believes that Paul was a witness, that he was, in fact, an eyewitness um, to the risen Jesus. So um, for Gary, Paul's road to Damascus experience, uh, and Gary's not the only one who thinks this way, but not all Christians do, so just putting that out there, but the, the road to Damascus experience for Gary was in fact a full-on 
uh, bodily appearance of Jesus, uh, uh, body, physical body, soma, I think is the, the word he does. He, he has a, a long section of this, which I found extremely tedious, and uh, so I cut out. Um, but he, he does believe that that bodily appearance was of the same kind as the appearance to uh, the rest of the disciples. Uh, and so Paul counts himself as having seen the actual physical risen Jesus, which is why uh, he feels like he can call himself an apostle. Now, that said, if you look at the rules of the apostles, what, what it meant to be an apostle in Acts, uh, when they were re replacing Judas, so the, the first scene in Acts is, you know, they're, they're there, everybody's a little stunned, they've seen Jesus, Jesus is gone, uh, they've got 11 and not 12, they've got to replace Judas, and Peter goes over um, what it takes to be an apostle. One of the things that it takes is you had to be with us from the beginning. Paul wasn't with them from the beginning. <laughs> uh, it, in fact, he doesn't meet any of the criteria uh, at all. And so what, you know, one of the things that scholars have done, because they recognize this, is they kind of hand wave that criteria away. But they do say that Paul is a legitimate apostle because he has seen the risen Jesus. And so they have to turn that from a visionary experience to an actual hands-on type physical uh, experience, and uh, that's and that's what it does. But your question of where was Paul in the Gospels is actually a good question. Yes, he wasn't in the Gospels, but here's what Jesus could have done if he was if there was actually going to be a guy to come along and basically displace Peter, James, and John as the heads of the future church, as the as the one who was going to lead the church into the next generation. He might have said something. There might have been some prophecy about Paul. Oh, by the way, guys, this outsider is going to come in, and he's not going to be like the other apostles, but he's actually going to be the one that takes the church to the next uh, generation and throughout the end times. Um, that's not mentioned anywhere. And so it is kind of suspicious. You know, Jesus makes all kinds of prophecies that don't come true about the end times. He has no mention of Paul. He doesn't know about Paul. None of them know about Paul. None of them anticipate Paul. So I, I find that interesting, especially including the fact that Paul was the first person to write anything down about Jesus that we have in the, in the Bible. So it kind of makes me think that there may have been some uh, division, let's say, in the Christian communities, not just speculation, uh, that uh, Paul and the other apostles didn't exactly have an amicable relationship, as as Luke tries to uh, paste over. There, there were some serious divisions, Paul and James, for instance. Um, people have noted that there's serious divisions there. Uh, so we, uh, Paul and Peter, you know, there were, there were some uh, divisions there. So um, it's a, it's just an interesting thing that all of the stuff that had to be done and kind of recontextualized to make Paul an apostle on par with the actual real apostles, 
and then smooth it over as if everyone was okay with it. I noticed that your mug doesn't match your shirt. You need to do a Gary. Make sure your mug matches your shirt. And the thing is, I've got a shirt that is exactly the color of this mug. So my bad. Well supported facts. But let me just come back to the one about the burial of Jesus. Because uh, yes. there's been some prominent scholars like Crossan who have denied this. And I think more recently, uh, Bart Ehrman has kind of backtracked and said he doesn't accept the burial. Where is scholarship as a whole on this? And maybe what are just a few of the key historical points you think are so convincing that we can trust this account? Um, okay, a lot of things to say here. Uh, first of all, yeah, you're right. Bart Ehrman has changed. He used to hold the private burial. You remember earlier when he said, oh, Bart Ehrman, he, he agrees with all, all of the facts. Uh, and I said, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Okay, so here's here's just one of the uh, examples, but I, yeah. How about the fact that we don't have any sources that tell us that Jesus is buried what's called a trench, a rectangle in the ground, and he was put there, and yeah, the dogs ate him, or he was thrown in the trash heap, Gehenna, in Jerusalem, and they burned him. No sources. Well, the comeback mm. is, that's what often happened with crucifixion victims. Uh, yes and no. We have a source in Josephus that tells us that Jews were so particular about the resurrection of the body, as far as the trash heap is concerned, that they even buried people who, uh, capital punishment people, they buried them. Okay, well, that could be in the ground. Okay, I was only answering the Gehenna thing, the trash heap. But there is more evidence for the tomb easily. Bill Craig has probably done the most on this, certainly one of them, who does an argument for Joseph of Arimathea had to be the had to be this most likely is this tomb. All the data we have link it to a man, Joseph, from mm -hmm. the um, you know, Sanhedrin, uh, his tomb. There's many of them in Jerusalem. Many. Uh, you go, well, that's only three or four facts. How many do you have for he was thrown to the ground? Okay, let me let me just pause there. Yeah, lots of uh, issues here. I yeah, think. one of the one of the reasons I chose this clip, um, they talk about Joseph of Arimathea, and all the facts they have about him. First of all, um, I don't see any uh, evidence that he was from the Sanhedrin. Um, I don't I don't remember. There may did did the Bible mention that he was a member of the council? Um, I don't. I, think so. I thought the only mention reference to Joseph Arimathea is literally in order to tie somebody to a grave to get Jesus into a tomb, and then he's never mentioned before or since. Yeah, so I don't know where they're getting their their facts, but uh, the only thing that you can find about Joseph Arimathea is in the Bible. So uh, he's he's talking about all of the references, and you're thinking, oh, well, this is a very scholarly conversation, and uh, surely they have a bunch of academic. Uh, you know, deep historical sources for Joseph of Arimathea, they do not. And as a matter of fact, uh, because I did a little bit of new research on uh, Joseph uh, preparing for this show, I had already studied Joseph before, but I thought, well, maybe maybe some new stuff has come up. Um, that there's not even an Arimathea. <laughs> so uh, forget Joseph of Arimathea. There's no Arimathea. Um, the city is uh, Arimathea meant to mean something 
else it's rather than the place? Uh, well, you see, that's one of the arguments that has been put forward uh, by conservative scholars who have been, uh, you know, tackled by less conservative <laughs> people with the notion that, uh, hey, hang on, there's no Arimathea. So uh, they have a number of answers for uh, for this uh, kind of thing. We'll we'll see some of that dancing around on another issue uh, in the next clip, I think. But um, so they have. There is a place that many scholars have kind of settled on that this is the place where they are um, uh, pretty sure was referred to as Arimathea, but. As a straightforward reading of it, uh, there's no Arimathea. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to move on, but if you're oh. finished with, with, with that point. Yeah, or... so Joseph of Arimathea. There is no Joseph of Arimathea in, in history either. And so the only things that we get from Joseph about Joseph Arimathea are uh, the biblical references, and then uh, there is some folklore uh, beyond that, and the lore has to do with Joseph of Arimathea taking the Holy Grail uh, to England or some something some some place uh, in in Europe, um, and uh, and that's that's what we've got, and you just you hear. Um, People like Gary Hammermast making this meal out of this biblical mention of Joseph of Arimathea as if it were history. It's not. It Don't be impressed by this, people. It's not. He's just taking everything that he finds in the Gospels as if those were independent historical sources. Well, just so that usually yeah, occurred. No, you can't. Sorry about that. But quick sidebar though on legends. Yeah, there's this place near me in in south South England called Glastonbury, which is a real hotbed of weirdness. And yeah, and there's some Jesus related legends. Actually, and I laws. think that's. I think it's, it was Glastonbury where he took the girl. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There's some weird stuff. Um, but what was it? Yeah, this whole thing about the the open pit and throwing bodies. And Gary said something about the Jews wouldn't have done that. Yeah, but the Jews didn't have the body. The Romans did it. The Romans did the prosecution. The Romans did the sentencing. The Romans uh, did the uh, the carrying out of the sanction. The 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 um the sentence. They they did the uh, crucifixion. They they did all of that. Are they really going to just give the body back, let the Jews take the body back? No, they're going to deal with the whole thing. They've taken control of the scenario and they're dealing with it the way they do it. And they chuck these bodies into a pit when they're done with them. You know, they're not going to, they, they dominated the Jews. The Jews were were submissive to the Roman rule at that point. Are the Romans really going to say, yeah, yeah, you, you can go and treat the bodies with the respect that you want to give it? No, the Romans aren't going to do that. <laughs> and we have that, you know. There are other people who have made good quality videos of what the Romans do to these bodies when they've done crucifying them, when they've made sure they're dead. Why would the Jews be taking this body back? Right. Well, this is a part of the uh, humanizing of Pilate, uh, the monster. Uh, so, of course, in the in the gospel stories, Pilate, he's a very reasonable guy. 
he didn't even want to do this crucifixion. I mean, he's having a great little uh, philosophical chat with Jesus about uh, truth, and he's like, this guy, is, he's not, he hasn't done anything. Uh, this guy should go for it. This is so, so much fiction. And so yeah. I have no reason to believe the next part either, that Jesus would have been one of these exceptions where Pilate would have said, oh, yeah, let, let the family uh, take the body. Uh, you, you have to accept a lot of fiction before you get to that particular, quote-unquote, fact that Pilate mm-hmm. allowed them to take the body in the first place. There's no reason to believe that. Yeah. And the other thing about Gary quoting um, Bartoman is I think it's on the Paulogio video channel where Bartoman is being interviewed and he's asked about the things that Gary says that he says. And Bart puts that right. I can't remember it well enough to be able to try to quote what is said, but go and look that up. Gary is very likely misquoting Bartoman here. Go and see here. Go and listen to what Bart Ehrman says about what Gary is saying about him. There are some inaccuracies. Don't trust Gary's word on what Bart says. I generally find uh, don't trust any Christian's word on what some skeptic said. <laughs> you know, I would I would just put that in bold. I'm not I'm not saying they're lying or trying to. They have a particular point of view. And anytime uh, what they say about some skeptic or famous atheist or something, anytime that can be cross-referenced with the actual thing that the person said, especially if the person is alive to talk about it, it's always a discrepancy. Mm-hmm. I even use that because Josepha says they, you know, that's they didn't treat them that way. So, but here's my biggest comeback on this. I think we're pretty solid because we have a lot of facts for the burial. But you got to be. Re- I'm so used to arguing what I'm going to say next. If okay. I'm in a little dialogue, I'm going to say, "I don't give a rip." All right. And you go, "Why would you say that? It's gospel." I, 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 I'm arguing for deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Sure. Now let me just make a point to show you. I would tell the critic, "Let me make a point to show you that I, right now I don't, for all intent and purposes, for right now, if I'm talking about this at the university, I don't care where he was buried. Let me make a point." If the, if the disciples stole the body and moved him to Peter's living room and didn't know what to do with him, and he's wrapped up in a linen cloth on Peter's couch, he's not buried in any of the above things we've answered. Well, he t- took him out of the tomb. But what happens on Easter Sunday? Darn it. Jesus rises in Peter's living room. I, what I mean is I don't. if they put him in a trench, if they put him in a tomb, if he's in a tomb but we don't know where it is, the most important point is, was he dead on the cross? Yes. And what happened afterwards? Mm-hmm. He was seen. What's the best appearance? The 12. And most of the appearance accounts are group accounts. You know what? And I would say, again, if I have a short time and I'm speaking in the university, I got the crucifixion. Easy. I got the appearances. Easy. The best one is the 12. And you're going to try to slow me down and ask me what happened on the burial? Let's talk about the appearances. And that's why the minimal facts work so well. I think the evidence is very strong that he was buried in, in a, a private tomb, Joseph, because there's no facts to the contrary. Mm. I mean, nothing substantial. But, but you know, beyond that, I don't use it. I, I, I care that oh, he was wow. What and a he was steaming pile of excrement that was. Yeah, let's, let's get um, – he's, he's only got a few more seconds uh, on this. We'll, we'll, trust me, I'm not going to let any of that get by. And seen, I mean – the two facts in the burial that are interesting to me, of course, is that it's multiply attested. 
and that yeah. it would be embarrassing potentially to have somebody from the very group that condemned Jesus to death to give him this honorable burial, of course. That's an and interesting so, factor. Joseph never, Joseph never corrects it. He doesn't yeah. come out and say, no, that, you know, there's no contrary. They're just a, a list of data for the burial. And I give some of it there in the book. You there's do. a list of data for the burial. But like I said, if he would rise from Peter's living room, he can certainly arise <laughs> from, a, from a dirt trench in the ground. Okay. All right. I, I'm sorry. I'm going first. <laughs> And so I, I just I want to take dirty the, having listened to that. I'm sorry. I want to take the last part. I'm I've always forgotten about the bigger main part, but um so one of the things he said in passing, and I just can't let it go, is Joseph never uh denied it. So he's treating Joseph as a figure of history that would have been around when these gospels were written and he would have been someone who could have said oh wait a minute no i didn't provide a tomb for that guy this is this is actually part of the argument he's making which is absolutely absurd because even if there had been a joseph of arimathea um who uh, did not provide a tomb for Jesus' burial. There is no reason to believe that he would have had, had access to any of the Gospels, uh, that he would have even bothered uh, refuting uh, something that some crackpot uh, said about him, or that he was even alive. So it's you remember my story uh, about how I uh, rescued several people uh, from the burning towers uh, in New York, and I and I flew up into the the towers and I and I brought people down and there were 5000 witnesses uh to the to the event now consider this not one single person has come forward to say that it didn't happen I I proved it <laughs> right <Wow. laughs> not one of these people I can name names one of their one of the people was Joshua Cantor Go look him up. Jo Joshua Cantor has never said that that it didn't happen. This is the kind of argumentation that he is resting his case on. And I, I find it painful to listen to because I really do like the man. And and this is this is the best Christians have for the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. So can we get the... So I'm in tabloid mode at the moment. The headline I'm seeing from what Gary's just said is Jesus gets a rise in Peter's living room. Right. Do with that mental image what you will. Um, anyway, yeah, regardless of where he was buried, if Jesus was truly divine, he could have been risen. Yeah, yeah, sure. The question is, can we trust any of this narrative? And if the narrative around the burial is so awful that it goes against what is understood historically that went on the time, that it includes details that are so far-fetched they 
may as well be fiction or pretty much are fiction. It introduces convenient characters and then get through get through. there's a thing in uh writing there's a there's a phrase in in writing fiction that is said you know introducing bad luck to get your hero into a bad situation is acceptable introducing convenient coincidence to get your hero out of a bad situation is lazy sloppy fiction and this is what's happened here We've got convenient intrusions into the story from from a character like Joseph, which is just never seen again, just to get a just move the plot along to get it to where you want it to go. That's lazy, sloppy fiction. People don't like that in fiction. People actually like sophisticated fiction. This is not sophisticated fiction. It's lazy and it's sloppy. And what it means is it builds up a picture of a burial narrative that is awful. It's it's, it's, it just reeks of crap. And you want me to believe a supernatural resurrection based off of something that is awful and sloppy and stinky? No, it just puts into question the entire thing. Write better fiction, guys. So uh, you will recall uh, an earlier thing that he was saying, which, uh, which I thought was good, uh, that Gary was pointing it out was um he was saying don't don't call them appearances uh, rather uh recognize that it's uh the disciples thought that they saw appearances of Jesus right so he was he was willing to say that but now he's just saying their appearances <laughs> Um, we've got the we've got the appearances uh, because the that's what he really creep of right. their language, right? So the the first thing that he was saying uh, satisfied uh, proper academia, and I appreciated it. And now he's just speaking as a as a believer. Uh, yeah, but we we know that they were actually real appearances. So these we've got the appearances, and so yeah. for him, as long as you don't doubt the appearances, nothing else matters. Doesn't matter. Um, you know what are the, what are other details uh, get wrong? So if you find yourself in an ar argument with an atheist and they're arguing with you about the details, you can just hand wave them away. None of those details matter as long as you hang on to the appearances. But the same place, and this is the point: the same place you learn about the appearances are the place where you learn about these other details. And so, if you can show that the credibility of the witnesses are suspect, even even uh, just bad, then you cannot accept the testimony of the appearances either. So you can't you can't say, well, it's a bad witness and they lied about everything. But this one thing that I need to be important to the case, I'll hang on to that. No, this, you know, if the witness is not credible, we can toss out what they say. Mm -hmm. in, including the stuff that you like. And so if you, once again, if you look at just the thing that Gary is hanging everything on in this segment anyway, which is, which are the appearances. Great. So what do we know about the appearances? And he says that Paul is his best witness. Well, Paul gives a list of appearances that the gospels don't, uh, don't allow for. In fact, the list of appearances that Paul gives, it's in stark contradiction. There's no harmony. It's in stark contradiction 
to the appearances given in the Gospels. So again, even on his main point, you do not have harmony. You have a disharmonious uh, set of witnesses telling you things that just makes it sound like people are making up appearances. Okay? So there is no reason to believe that there were appearances since that too is one of the facts that is now in question because of contradictory testimony about the appearances. I just, I just wanted to emphasize that again. Uh, so Gary, yeah, if you want to throw everything out except for the appearances uh, and, and claim that the appearances are solid and you just want us to look at the appearances, well, I'm sorry, they're not solid either. No. So that is, that is all of this clip. And we have one final clip, which should say clip four. I think it's this one. First of all, years ago when That's I was going four. through my doubt, I stopped everything for two weeks, went to the mm. library, pulled out a hundred books and studied that. And that one of 1332 is. Okay. Oops. My bad. Let me just pull this up in quick time. All right. So what he's talking about uh, is the uh, Olivet Discourse. Uh, and that would be where the question of, well, was Jesus a false prophet? Can we, can we really trust, uh, you know, things said about Jesus? Because Jesus clearly prophesied that he would return in this generation. And he did not return in that generation. And so this is a, a, a real problem. I did a, a whole show uh, on this. A lot of the shows that I'm talking about were in my uh, Patreon project, project uh, Red Letters. Excuse me, so they're not publicly available. But I did a show uh, on the Olivet Discourse uh, because it is a very important topic to me. The one chance that I had to talk to Bart Ehrman, by the way, uh, Thank you, Matt, uh, for uh, for getting that, and uh, Matt and Andrew for giving me a few seconds with Bart. Um, that's the one thing I asked him about <laughs> was uh, the Olivet Discord. It's it's a real problem uh, for Christians, and how do how do we explain this away and keep it so that Jesus is not a false prophet? And so he's dealing with uh, that objection. First of all, years ago when I was going through my doubt, I stopped everything for two weeks, went to the library, pulled out a hundred books, and studied that. And that one of 1332 is not a very good objection, because in the same text, same context, Jesus says, by the way, I don't know when I'm returning. Stop. Wrong. That is simply untrue. This is this is one of the reasons why in these shows I am inclined to have a Bible open on the screen and I read scriptures <laughs> because they're currently they're alluding to scriptures, at least the ones that, you know, actually know scripture, which is not true of a lot of Christians. Uh Gary does uh know scriptures, but so do I. Uh and the fact of the matter is what um what Gary just said isn't true. It is a, it is in fact a, 
uh, if I can borrow from uh, Ehrman, misquoting Jesus. Um, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, I don't have any idea of when I'm coming back. He said that no man knows the day or the hour. All right. So when his apostles ask him when these things are going to happen, Jesus didn't say, nobody knows. That is not what he said. He, he didn't say, I don't have any idea. What he did was give them very specific information about the signs and things that would happen. And, he, and he, throughout, he said, okay, but when this happens, then the end is going to be very near. Uh, and he narrows it in further toward the end of his speech and said, uh, it, it is going to happen in this very generation. But in, in uh, directly following th that, he says, no one knows the day or the hour, or uh, that may have been just directly preceding that. No one knows the day or the hour, but it's going to happen in this generation. That's the context of this quote. So it was narrowed down quite a bit. Jesus did not say, I don't have any idea. That is simply not what he said. And what Gary is doing right here, I'm not saying he's lying. I, I would not say that about Gary. But, uh, and, but I also don't think that he, that he fully believes what he's saying either, if he, if he stops and thinks about it. But he so has to say something to make this go away. I have seen Christians do this kind of thing. They just go into really bad exegesis to make the problem go away. And he's not done with a bad exegesis here in the, just the blatant misquote of this scripture. So you can go read it. Mark chapter 13, um, verse 30 through 32. That's, that's all the relevant stuff you need there. Uh, and you, and you will see that it does not in fact say what Gary says. It says what I say. Um, and it's, it's very clear, and it's very painful. And even though this is kind of tangential to his argument, it almost undoes, undoes everything that he says. It undoes his theological credibility, almost. Uh, this, is, this is so bad. Um, but it, he's not done with the bad. So I, uh, uh, do you have anything to say about that before I let this play out? No, let's carry on with the bad. I'm sure I'll have something to say then. 1332 mm. is the one. He says, that one knows no man, nor the angels, nor the sun. But wait a minute. You said it's this generation only. Ah, I can pull Gingrich down from my shelf. The Greek Right. You said it was this generation only. But that's he said, no man knows, not even the sun, no man knows the day or the hour. That's the part. So what about this bit out. about angels? Is is Gary misquoted and inserted that as well? Uh I don't know if it mentions the angels there or not. It might because this is this is in more than one place. Uh, okay. it's is more he than amalgamating different translations? Is he? Uh, it, it's it's possible, but I mean, there's you can find this in Matthew, you can find it uh, in Mark, and so it could be that angels are in one of those. I don't want to say for sure because I don't have that completely memorized, but I know that it says no one knows what he's the the ultimate thing that he's leaving out is no one knows the day or the hour, but he's not saying we don't know the general time frame uh right. and what 
what Gary is trying to say is Jesus is suggesting that I don't have any idea. I, I don't know. And that's that's simply not true. Commentator, Art and Gingrich, the best known Greek, uh, Greek mm-hmm. lexicon. You look it up on the shorter lexicon by uh, Gingrich and you look up Ganea. The word for generation, you know, the first gener, you know, the first definition, the only definition, race. Okay, so this is maneuver number two. Uh, I say that thing. Most Christians don't know this passage anyway, so uh, no one's going to challenge me. But let me move to the next bad argument. Uh, let's redefine a word. Uh, this is also a part of the Christian playbook. Whenever something inconvenient comes up with a Bible, well, you see, here's the problem. Uh, you you don't understand ancient Chaldean, do you? You fool. Of course, if you had spent 17 years in grad school, you would know uh, that gynea uh, actually doesn't mean what every translator in the world has translated as. You would know that it means this other thing. Uh, This is such a condescending argument, and Christians should be insulted by it. And so, uh, to get out of this, once again, Gary's not the only person I've seen uh, make this move here in this passage, but he's saying, no, it it doesn't mean uh, this generation will pass. It means that this race will pass. And what does he think race means? This race will not pass. What was Jesus' mm. point? Well, the Philistines are gone. Most of the other tribes are gone. The Assyrians are gone. The Assyrians... The Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, they're all gone, but Jews are still here. Bullshit! This is not at all what this passage was saying. There is absolutely nothing of this in that there's no mention of it, no allusion to it. There's no uh there's no poetic uh you know tie-in to any of this. This is just a reach from a person who is desperate to get Jesus off the hook from being a false prophet. This is all this is. Do not be deceived by this this dive into some arcane knowledge of an arcane language that only Gary knows, but every translator in the world doesn't know. And this is really talking about the Jews as a race as opposed to the Philistines. Read the goddamn Bible and you will see that this is bullshit. This is absolute, desperate, look over there, not over here, bullshit. Sorry about that. I didn't realize I was going to be... This I get the impression you weren't very impressed, David. I was not very impressed. Uh, and once again, this is the kind of reasoning his entire argumentation is based on. And it's bullshit. We can catch him doing it. Don't buy <laughs> this 900-page tome full of bullshit. That's a meaningful point. There's a bunch of other ones, too. I, I have an article where well, you, you already rela- uh, re- related uh, some of the arguments. But I think Mark Mark 13, I think, is a really bad argument. Because here Jesus says in the context, I guess you didn't hear me. I said, I don't know when I'm returning. But mm. you said in this generation, um, the word can also mean race. It can mean people. It can, <laughs> It, it's, it usually means generation, but it doesn't have to. There's another argument. Yeah, no, it usually means generation, except when it really hurts. This is the better talk. You know, I like these other arguments, too, where I can say, I really don't care. Now, I'm not going to say that about this one, because Jesus would be mistaken. But okay. here's, here's what I would say. 
Jesus' number one lecture point, according to almost everybody in the New Testament, it's not part of my minimal fact, because it's not during the, well, it does happen in resurrection, but his number one teaching is the kingdom of God and how to get there. In Mark, he came out preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's his number one teaching. And interestingly enough, after he rises from the dead in Acts 1, he's still talking about the kingdom. And when Paul goes hmm. on the way to Damascus, he's still talking about the kingdom. It's his number one teaching. All right, here's my argument. If his number one teaching was the kingdom, and he specifically says, I don't know when I'm returning, if perchance he guessed and was wrong, it's not his big point. His main point is the kingdom is coming. The resurrection says it's coming. And if he were a false prophet by any definition, why did God raise him from the dead? I think that's a good comeback is if he was wrong about time of his coming, he's a pretty bad false prophet. Number one, he's off his subject. The subject is the kingdom, not the timing of the kingdom. Just like we know the second coming, but we know the timing of the second coming. Jesus said, I don't know the timing. But the second one is, if he were a heretic, why did God raise him and only him in the history of religion? We have no other evidence that a founder of a major world religion was raised from the dead, even by his Orthodox followers. None. So I've got to, I've got to take a stand for the argument that God raised him because his teaching was true. And what was his teaching? If you want to get to the kingdom, believe in me, follow me. And what you do with me, this even Boltman says this. If you want to bold, boil down Jesus' argument, it's like this. What do you do with me? Because what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. That's that's mm. what Jesus preached, and eternity is the kingdom. Yeah, but he's wrong about the coming. Well, if it's that bad, first of all, I don't think he was. I, I give all kinds of those arguments, like, and I've done it elsewhere. But the main thing is he couldn't have been a heretic because his father raised him. That would be pretty bad. Okay. Yes, but if some of these details reported by these allegedly reliable eyewitnesses are so sloppy, so poor, so often demonstrably wrong, why should we even trust that he was raised? See, um, Gary just Am leans... Am I being too logical here? Yeah, Gary leans too heavily into this idea of the resurrection is the only thing that matters. Even Christians have to start feeling cringe at this point when Gary is is willing to argue, even hypothetically, that we can we can get rid of all the other details and just admit all those are wrong and still have the resurrection. Even even Christians have to know that that's not true. Uh, but I I just want to go uh, back and and connect an, another dot theologically, uh, at the very end of, of what he's saying, to also demonstrate how bad his theology is here. <laughs> uh, so I, I promised myself, sorry, popping peas here, I promised myself that I would not um, read Scripture. <laughs> so I'm j I just have to allude to it, allude to it. Um, you remember... Uh, roughly Matthew 12, 10 or 12, somewhere in there, um, where Jesus is accused by his enemies of casting out demons by the power of demons. And 
Jesus uh, says uh, that doesn't make any sense. A divided house cannot stand. And essentially, uh, paraphrasing, demons wouldn't cast out demons. Uh, it, it would take the power of God to cast out demons. So that was his argument. In uh, the end of, sorry again, at the end of, I want to see Matthew 7, Sermon of the Mount, um, Jesus says, and many will come saying, Lord, Lord, haven't I done uh, many wonderful works in your name? Haven't I, uh, you know, I did these miracles. And one of the miracles that he uh, mentions people would say they did was we cast out demons. And the Lord will turn to them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. So hang on. The only way people, according to Jesus, could cast out demons was with the power of God. And yet these people who were using the power of God to cast out demons would end up facing a judge that says, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. I, I mention that and I, and I lay that out here because Gary's argument is, well, if Jesus was a false prophet, God wouldn't have raised him. But that is not true. We just see that God is willing to cast into outer darkness people who have been using his power <laughs> to cast out demons. That doesn't matter. He's not impressed with that. Doesn't care. And you can't say, you can't turn around and say, well, those people were casting out demons with the power of demons. Because Jesus says that doesn't happen. <laughs> so this argument is, is just theologically unsound that it, it Jesus had to be telling the truth or else God wouldn't have raised him from the dead. It simply isn't the case. Although I suppose if we want to have one more uh, data point theologically, we can go way back to the Old Testament uh, to a passage that everyone knows. So I don't have to really cite it verbatim here, but uh, the uh, criteria for a true prophet of God is someone whose predictions come true. And if uh, a person prophesies in the name of God and their prediction doesn't come true, uh, they should be put to death. Well, Jesus' prediction didn't come true. Technically, he was put to death. <laughs> and so... And so, in order to get past that, we have to invent a resurrection and appearances. Uh, by his main witness, Paul, whose set of appearances don't, in fact, match up, but contradict appearances in the Gospels. So, this is just, this is a, a, a house of cards that's so flimsy I don't know how he spent his entire life working on these various theses without 
seeing some of these issues. Now, granted, you know, I've given you maybe 45 minutes of his his stuff, and this was a two-hour podcast, and his books are are going to be probably 3,000 pages, uh, you know, three to 4,000 pages altogether. So maybe he deals with some of this stuff in there. But I am not trying to straw man him, and I have watched the entire video, and I don't think that you'll find anything in the entire video that contradicts what I am saying about him or that suggests that I am mischaracterizing him. I've been very careful to try not to do that, and if someone finds where I have, you can feel free to bring it up anywhere on the Skeptics and Seekers 4S board, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can drop a comment anywhere on the board. I will find it. And uh, with that, I'm mostly done with Gary Habermas until he writes another volume, I guess. Uh, Matt? Yeah, I'm not going to be rushing out to spend my money uh, on this, although I'm fairly sure I would gratefully receive any free donations uh, uh, of them. Yeah, I watched this, and then I watched it again when you said, yeah, Matthew, let's deal with this. There was nothing really new here. From I've been listening to this guy who I genuinely don't trust. I just don't trust him at all. I don't trust his technique. I don't trust what he says. Uh, let's just get that out there. He's in the bottom of my list of uh, Christian apologists uh, who I have any kind of respect for. None. Um, but but that's like so. But I've been familiar with the kind of things that he's been saying for a number of years, and there was really nothing new here. There are a couple of couple of nuances in some of the stuff that he was saying, but nothing really new. But the big thing for me is it's the this volume one is labelled evidence. You know, Sean introduced it with evidence, but all we get is these standard arguments that we've all heard before. There's really nothing new in the structure. People have dealt with them multiple times ad nauseum. I'm really disappointed by this. I would have thought 900 pages of volume of evidences, we would get something that was actually interesting and something that we could would actually make me stop and go, oh, okay, maybe I need to investigate this more. Nada, nothing. There's nothing there. Is that really all it is? So my prediction is that what Gary's volume of gunk is going to be is he's trying to collate all the arguments that Christians use for these kinds of things. He's trying to collate it into one pile with his name on top so that he can fund his uh, retirement. That's what he's doing here. Okay. Um, I like Gary. I so, don't. I know. I know. <laughs> you feel about Gary the way I feel about Linux. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't like him either. <laughs> so uh, I've written off ever talking to Linux. I don't want to. Um, I guess I should write off ever talking to Gary again too. But, <laughs> but Gary, um, come on, talk to David. It'll be fun. No. Maybe. It wouldn't. Um, I guess if I had one last thing to say about this, this is kind of what I've been saying about Gary's uh, minimal facts approach for a long time. And I think gentleman McClatchy might even 
agree with me a little bit on this, but um, I think the minimal facts approach, this was, this is the heart of Gary's real work, okay? This is the, this is his real magnus opus, um, his real breakthrough. You know, every, every scholar needs a breakthrough idea that's unique uh, and that, and that is their signature. And so Gary's signature is the minimal facts uh, approach. I think the approach is flawed, mm-hmm. even if stated at its very best. It's, it's completely and utterly misguided. And the reason I say this, uh, notice how many times he cites Bart Ehrman and, and uh, that he quotes, uh, misquotes Bart Ehrman. But you talk about Bart Ehrman and all these other scholars who are not Christian, all right? And, and so you're going to try to boil it down to facts that they all agree on. Let us assume just ignore all of my objections, all of Matt's observations, just ignore all that and accept all 12 of his minimal facts. All of the skeptics that he claims to agree with him aren't Christians. Aren't Christians. So you're saying they agree with all of your minimal facts and find it unconvincing, then you are done. Your evangelistic effort is useless. Your your best shot, you've got all of these facts that convince nobody, which should make people think, well, maybe those facts aren't all that. Then, um, if that's the net re- result, and I, I just kind of go back to a thing that I said earlier, this was never about converting the unconverted. It's about keeping the Christians who are on the bubble in their seats. It, it's it's what it did for him, and it's what he's doing for other people. This is directed toward Christians. It's not directed toward non-believers because when it comes to non-believers, even the scholars who quote unquote agree with the minimal facts, it's not nearly enough. It's not like any of these scholars are thinking, well, maybe, maybe I should be a Christian. No, it's possible to agree with all of this and still not be a Christian. (laughs) So uh, at the end of the day, the minimal facts approach is just misguided and you have spent your life trying to prove things that don't matter to anyone who doesn't already believe in the basic framework that you're using. And that, I think, is most pitiable. Yes. Amen. Okay, great commentary there from you, Matt. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you say it better than even I can, David. Wow, I don't, I don't believe it. Um, <laughs> what, what are you, what are you winding up to ask for from me? Uh, you can have it. Uh, so, <laughs> so, all right, folks, uh, we will do the, uh, we'll do this again. Hopefully, uh, real 
soon. I love having uh, Matt. I love talking uh, to Matt. I love the co- the conversations that Matt and I have that don't end up in the recordings. Um, and um, we will be doing more shows together, I have a feeling, because, you know, Matt, uh, Andrew, still unbelievable, me and, well, me, uh, over here on uh, Force, we have always been one crew. We've, we've yeah. just been doing two different things. So the, and we've the, got plans for multiple joint shows this year. I just haven't got my acts together to start scheduling number one, but we have got plans for this year. Yeah, three of us together in multiple shows. So looking forward to that. That's going to be good when it starts happening. Right, and and honestly, none of us. It's not like we've got a staff. <laughs> it's, it's just us. And when our lives go topsy turvy, which they do a lot, uh, it's just hard to get together and do stuff. Uh, uh, Matt's over, you know, on the other side of the where he's in the down under. Um, and, um, I'm, um, uh, I'm, I'm staring down the battle, uh, the barrel of, uh, major knee surgery that might be coming. Um, that's gonna, that's gonna knock me off my horse, uh, for thoughts a while. Thoughts and prayers, David. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and, thoughts and prayers. Preferably just thoughts and more thoughts, because <laughs> at least that's something. <laughs> so, um... And uh, Andrew, uh, you know, he's he's deeply embroiled in a business that keeps him from being able to, well, do just about anything. So we we are all, um, you know, kind of kind of scattered and super busy, and we want to do way more stuff than we actually have the ability to do together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting ready to enter a new phase of my work. I think I might mention more about that if that, if that actually happens, but there, there'll be some changes there, uh, at work. So that's going to require more of my time, a major project there. So, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, combining resources and forces and doing things together. It's, we mean it. We just haven't done it because we can't and we're humans. And if any of you would like to be our staff, you know, for free. Uh, you know, get in touch with Matt at ReasonPress uh, dot uh, net. Is that right? Gmail.com. Uh, uh, ReasonPress at gmail.com. Skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to be on the show, uh, you can just request to be on the show. And uh, after giving it due consideration, you're on. It's just a matter of scheduling. <laughs> I love talking to strangers about stuff. <laughs> so surprise me. Uh, so with that, I think that we're over. And so, uh, until the next time I will see you in the comments. In the meantime, I'm out.